0: Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, professor of strategy at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, and I'm joined by my friend, Dr. John Michaelshek, professor of theory and history at JAWS. John, today we've got uh, two wars to catch up on. We've got the conflict in Ukraine and Israel and Hamas, but I'd like to start today by just catching up on Ukraine. And many folks have been reading recently this Washington Post series that describes the stalemate in Ukraine and the problems that Ukraine and their military forces have been having in executing this counteroffensive that has been uh, so long anticipated. And it just seems that counteroffensive never really gained the kind of traction that everybody uh, in the West was hoping for. You made this analogy when we were talking earlier today. It's like World War One, but with drones. What are your views of this uh, this war, John, and where it's going?
1: Kind of the idea of this episode is we've been following the war. I will help sell some downloads is the Washington Post has a two-part series on Ukraine. And one of the parts, and what we are kind of been focusing on, is the stalled or failed, however you want to word it, counteroffensive Based on some of the image, based on the news, based on more drone information coming out, this war is beginning to look like World War I with drones. And I think where we stand right now, roughly, it's getting to be wintertime. It's a little warmer here where we are, but where they are, it's starting to snow, starting to freeze. And so we'll see what the winter comes. But as of right now, if we're being objective, and Dr. Mans, I will ask you this. In your opinion, has the counter-offensive by the Ukrainians failed?
0: in a uh, one word answer yes. Uh, I believe it has failed and this is so analogous to World War one. you know each side has built up forces for an offensive hoping to break through the trench lines only to find that they make the most minimal progress, clear uh, you know a few, 100 meters, maybe a mile or two, and then they get bogged down and they're, they're incapable of having a true breakout on the far side. And we saw that with the Ukrainians really starting in June when they attempted this last offensive. They met very stiff resistance from the Russians, had trouble breaking through the minefields, saw their mine-clearing equipment and their armored vehicles destroyed, even the, the most advanced Western Abrams tanks and and uh, Leopard tanks that were provided, they were destroyed, the offensive ground to a halt, and it, and it went back to small teams of infantry slugging it out. But then, you know, after that, the, the Russians attempted virtually the same thing and massed several thousand forces and armored vehicles and attempted a similar penetration and, and breakthrough and also failed. So it, it just seems so much like world war one where each side gears up and tries these offenses uh but they're incapable of having the breakthroughs that that they want and they end up losing hundreds uh, if not thousands of troops in in each attempt
1: yeah and i'm going through thinking about this uh and some of the stats that we're getting and again it's you know as a good historian we take we, we take the news and most of it will be true but we're saying some of the stats here uh, and I'll get to the minds in a minute 70% of the troops in one of the Ukrainian brigades had no combat experience and you're asking them to do a strategic breakthrough which has been the new kind of focus I know I've I've already peer reviewed some things on strategic breakthroughs and it does remind me of World War II and this is where Again, we talked about social media in Israel Hamas episode a couple of weeks ago is I was thinking is a is a good World War Two historian, what would social media have been saying in 1941, roughly this time of the year, when the Germans were rolling into on the outskirts of map Moscow? Would we be talking about the, why is a German offensive breakthrough? Why did it work? Are the Soviets done? And then we leap forward another year? The Russians begin to counter offensive, and why didn't they get to Berlin? And I think what we're learning, and I think it's we we don't learn our history, is in World War One, were there ever any strategic breakthroughs?
0: Uh, and I would say no, really. No. I mean that was uh, very much though the breakthroughs were attempted became a, a war of attrition, um, and when the United States joined, I think Germany was able to look at the that attrition style of warfare and with a, a fresh new great power joining the conflict, they realized they could not sustain and they sued for peace. But there was really no great defeat of the German armed forces prior to their capitulation. And and I think this signals something we should be concerned about in the war in Ukraine, which is when you look at the, the size of the Russian forces, just the raw numbers of people that they can bring to bear and the size of Ukraine, if I were Putin, I would continue to grind away at those Ukrainian forces. He doesn't necessarily need a a big breakthrough. He just needs to eat away at those Ukrainian forces until they're incapable of manning that 700-mile trench line.
1: Yeah, I agree. And one of the things with the strategic breakthrough piece is World War One? they just bash their heads up against the wall over and over again, just different parts of the wall. Um, and in that way, too, I'll answer the question I asked you, is did the counteroffensive fail? And I think strategically, well, yes. Did they make some gains? Sure. But where we'll flip that around, we're seeing the casualty numbers jump. Now, we're talking mainly about Ukraine, but do you think Putin and the Russians can continue – to take the casualties they are. If you go by some of the reports that are on social media, um, and like the British intel that tweets it out every day, the Russians are supposedly sustaining a thousand killed every day. Yeah,
0: and I don't know if I buy into that. That's a lot Um, of people. It's a lot of people. I think in some of these battles, even in that that attempted offensive uh, that's reported in the Washington Post, they had several thousand Russian troops killed. But if you look back at the long history of Russia in warfare, it's bad thinking, uh, I would say, to count them out ever or to think that they are not willing to endure massive casualties. Uh, just that population, their, their psyche allows them to take all these casualties. And I just read uh, Putin, I, I believe, is now trying to raise or he will raise another 170,000 troops to put into that fight. And they are, they are turning their economy into a wartime uh, economy, and they're singularly focused on winning this war in Ukraine. And again, if you go back to attrition warfare and you just look at the, the size of those two countries and populations, that does not bode well for Ukraine.
1: All right, so we're, we're talking a lot of doom and gloom. You're not Mr. Optimistic here nor do I expect you to be, but we'll ask a comp question we ask students. Similar, you're advising Zelensky, the Ukrainian Army. What advice do you give them? Well,
0: my advice, you know, this is your world, John, of uh, theory of warfare. The defense is much stronger in warfare. So if I were advising Zelensky, I would uh, advise him, to go very much onto the defense, establish an extremely strong defensive network with mobile reserves uh, behind their front lines, and let the Russians destroy themselves up against your defensive positions. And then really try to see where this war goes over the course of the next year and, and hope to kind of flip the, the table and have the uh, the Russians being the ones who are depleting their combat power to the point that they, they can't continue.
1: Yep, and we will see what the winter holds, as we know, in this part of the world. The winters, uh, we look at World War II as a backdrop. They had some pretty cold winters. That will have an effect. Last winter was pretty mild for that part of the world. If this one is a little harsher, it will. I think it's going to— change how the war continues on in the spring i think we both agree is this ending anytime soon
0: no no i think this this goes on at least until the spring summer of next year at the earliest if not if not longer Um, but i think we should change gears john and revisit israel uh, hamas Uh, since we first talked about this israel has executed their ground campaign into gaza Uh, we went through that period of uh, a truce as they exchanged prisoners but that time has passed and now israel is clearing and holding terrain uh, going into these tunnel networks that hamas has built and they're clearing them out my question is what follows that can they hold and occupy gaza would they want to do that or do they simply clear uh, Hamas fighters from Gaza and then get back across their border and uh, and back into a, a sanctuary?
1: Yeah, so this one is a little complicated, just like Ukraine, just dealing with a larger larger area, larger people. It was, I guess, good to see that there was a truce, and they they exchanged some hostages. They did the swap. And we've been talking to... Is the Israeli plan again, I, I, they're not as out there on social media as the Ukrainians have been. I think the Ukrainians have used Twitter especially as a kind of a great information tool. What I don't have a good idea, I don't think anyone does is how what are their casualties looking like? as it seems right now, they are going north to south in Gaza. Uh, there's talk of keeping the operations. I saw a map. Almost looked like an artillery map of where the grid squares were, and they would tell people we're going to operate in this square so everyone leave. I don't know how that is sustainable. I get the humanitarian reasons for it, but then you're also telling your enemy where you're going to be, which is not uh, not good. Then I think we've been talking clear-hold-build, which is a counterinsurgency of the last 20 years, and that is where you go into an area, clear it of all the bad guys, and then you hold it and then build it up. And the theory is, and it's, I would still argue it's very much a theory, that you will then bring peace, prosperity to that little section. Uh, when we talk long-term, then it gets a little murkier. Short-term, it can work. And that's where, if I'm the Israeli government, I don't know if going and seizing Gaza is what I would want to do. I also don't know if long-term it's good. And that brought up the subject where I think where we're going, is how does one defeat an ideology. Can you do it?
0: Yeah. You know, I I think a couple practical issues come out in this is, can you really go through Gaza, identify and eliminate Hamas fighters who, if they put their weapons down, look like anybody else in the Gaza Strip? So that's in itself a problem, and it's a, a chronic counterinsurgency issue. But also, you know, in that very small area of Gaza, densely populated, and Israel's been dropping bombs throughout there and and many uh, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, if not over a million, are displaced. I I don't see how, after clearing and holding, you win over the population. I can only imagine that the population in Gaza will be increasingly hostile to Israel and will never accept uh, having what we would call a build phase at the end where they're providing services and, and and goods and governance and all those things, a reconstruction and development for the people. So, again, I think Israel does clear hold temporarily and then get back to sanctuary. Uh, and there's even some talk of Israel reestablishing their defensive line between Gaza and the state of Israel and substantially uh, enhancing that to the point where it looks something like the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea.
1: So would that be, that DMZ, is that all around Gaza or is it just like the north?
0: I think you'd have to do it along the in, the entire length of that uh, border. I mean, they had something similar to that prior to October 7th, but but I think you know they relied too much – on technology and a very thin presence of troops that obviously the uh, Hamas fighters were able to to figure out a way how to penetrate that thin defensive line and carry out the attacks that that they did carry out. But so much of this, John, again, is the information fight. You see how our country has become split over this issue and and around the world. You know, we want to support democracies. But it's super complicated with Israel as a democracy, and they're treading, I think, as lightly as they can in Gaza, but they're still using force. I mean, this is, again, back to your world of of the study of the theory and history of war. This is a test of wills, and one side is using violence to compel the other uh, to carry out an action, and and it's hard to do that without— you know, making enemies of, of so many folks. And even Donald Rumsfeld said famously once, you know, you can kill a terrorist, but but every time you do, maybe you make three. Yeah. And that's the conundrum that is facing the Israeli leadership.
1: Which, yeah, that, that idea, which we, we've, you know, I've written about counterinsurgency mainly in Afghanistan. I've always been a little skeptical of that notion that if you, you know, you kill one, you make three more. I think it's, it's, there's some truth to it. But I think with the Israelis, I do think they could learn from the Ukrainians on how to use social media more. Because as you see, uh, and it just came out, what is it, last night, what's going on at some of the Ivy Leagues? There is, and again, there's a, not to say there's no divide between Ukrainian support and not. But almost every American is saying, like, we need to support them somehow. But with you Israel, it's a little more divisive um and as you see with the mainly again it's a lot of college student protests uh but it trickles down to elsewhere
0: yeah, and you know what is really hard for israel is these just horrific images i've not seen them but apparently uh they are showing uh to select groups of journalists and political leaders of the actions of hamas after they they crossed into israeli territory uh they're limited in social media on on what you can put out there. There was editorial yesterday in the New York Times that very, very graphically describes the atrocities that were carried out by Hamas fighters in in Israel. It's to a level of detail that I've never seen in the New York Times before. But, boy, that's a tough message to get out on social media. And maybe it's easier for Hamas now uh, on social media to show the, the casualties of Israeli uh, Israeli bombing raids.
1: Yeah, that's a, and it's a tough one, and i I'd read that exact article too, um, and I do think that is maybe how the Israeli government's going to approach it, particularly with the uh, attack into the concert venue, some of the imagery coming out of that. I also saw something too about flooding all the tunnels. I don't know how you operationally would do that, like it seems like another good idea, fairy. But well, it's think especially how, hard. think of the images of that. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, uh when a lot of the hostages, many who still remain in Gaza, are being held in those those tunnels. Yeah. So this is extraordinarily complex for Israeli leadership. And John, I think we're just going to have to, you know, revisit this again, perhaps after the holiday break. And see where this war and and the war in Ukraine, uh,
1: yeah, I think we, we, where they've evolved. I know the world is always waiting for our announcements and pronouncements on uh, the wars, but I think an update will happen. And so where I think we're, where we're leaving them, uh, like the winter's coming in Ukraine, uh, there will be a slowdown of operations. We'll see the drone warfare. Maybe that was the something we were floating around when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. Could you imagine with the use of drones? now in 2023 if we were still in afghanistan how that would change that war
0: yeah i mean this technology is moving so rapidly and it's very much an asymmetric threat against highly technological forces like uh, the u.s forces or or israel's uh, forces That you can have a, a a little drone that costs a couple hundred dollars but can be extraordinarily lethal against various platforms and, and especially infantry that are, that are manned in trench lines. So I think if that war had continued in, in Afghanistan, we would have seen the, the Taliban exploiting that technology. And, and this is, you know, maybe we should wrap up here, but when we talk about you know, the future of, of armed conflict, especially for, for U.S. forces, this idea that we have air superiority or air supremacy that era has passed, and I don't think any troop who's carrying out any action in a in a f- forward area in combat now can expect to be protected from aerial attack, even if it's that $200 drone that's yeah, flying with a, the equivalent of a hand grenade on it. Cheaper than
1: that even. It's all these cardboard drones. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the the character war changing. Maybe we'll need to get a little smarter on drones and have a drones episode.
0: Yeah, well, I've got a student who's absolutely an expert on it. We should bring him in and talk about it. We can do that. Future episodes. All right, John, wrap it up.
1: So keep reading on these conflicts. Uh, You see a lot of stuff in the news. Make sure you're self-aware. We just need to bring back net guns to take down all the drones, laser beams and net guns. Then foremost, read your Clausewitz.